Well, as some of you know, my father has been living with us since July. I am so thankful for my dad, his great influence on me for Jesus Christ. But my background is somewhat unusual. I was born in California because my parents were filming a weekly TV show in Hollywood. Now, not because they were TV stars, but because my dad and his brother saw this new medium of TV as a great way to share the good news about Jesus Christ. So in 1960, the four brothers, their wives, and their whole families packed up and they moved to Hollywood for almost a year. I mean, they felt God's call to use TV to tell the world about Jesus Christ. So they produced what's called Homestead USA, several episodes. They shared their lives, they preached about Jesus, and they sang. And this past week, I was reminded of one of the songs that they sang, which reveals where they put their trust. So the angry surgeons crazy though the angry surges roll my anchor holds and my dad at 86 would tell you even to this day that Jesus is the anchor of his life and I am so thankful for his witness to me to my kids my grandkids and I want that for you I want that for your family that in the storms of life you have an anchor to hold you secure in fact, our prayer as leaders is that you would daily focus your life in two key ways. Number one, with your eyes up on Jesus. And number two, with your anchor down in the Word of God. And so we're in the fourth week of our series, Eyes Up, Anchors Down. 
And in our spiritual life, we need an anchor for our soul when the storms come crashing at us. And we're definitely seeing the impact of the storms of life and in our spiritual walk. We, we need the church family and our lives united together are crucial. We've learned that we must be able to withstand the storms of life. And in, in, if all of our support systems are removed, will we stand strong? And we're seeing the answer to this question played out right in front of our very eyes. But we can stand strong if we develop a focus each day lifestyle, which helps us keep our eyes up on Jesus and our anchors down in his word. And so this series has as a key passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So do you have that scripture memorized? So I want you to try it out loud with me right now. Swallow that bagel and say it with me. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not do what? We do not drift away. We know we keep our eyes up on Jesus because his message is the one we desperately need. But how do we know that the message found in the Bible are really his words. In week one, when we looked at this same passage, we discussed the credibility of the speaker, Jesus Christ, and that his words are the ones that we need to focus upon, and he's the one to whom we listen. But today, what I want to do as we go back again to Hebrews 2 is to consider the validity of his words and how we know that the Bible actually does contain the words of God. So here's our key. Anchor your life to God's word because it is trustworthy. It is trustworthy. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Use the YouVersion app. Uh, Use the tab down there. But I want us to look together. I'll read Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4 out loud as you follow along in your home. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now I can picture the writer. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Watching some fishing boats coming in to shore, or maybe he's waiting for a boat to take him on a journey. But like any good preacher, he thinks sermon illustration. But maybe what comes to his mind are his friends, the Christians to whom he will be writing, who they're struggling in their commitment to Jesus. And and he's seeing this boat as it drifts, and he's thinking, don't be that boat without an anchor. Don't allow the circumstances of life to cause you to drift away from Jesus Christ. 
This idea of drifting or being thrown about by the waves, it's a concept found all throughout Scripture. For example, James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James 1.6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Or here's Paul's words in Ephesians 4.14. He's talking about the leaders of the church and what the church means. And then he says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So here, the, the writer of Hebrews uses this terminology to warn his readers, and of course, in turn, us, that life throws at us events that will threaten our faith if we are not anchored to the truth, paying attention as he challenges us to what we have heard. But in the case he's describing here, it isn't difficult storms, but apparently it's just a lack of focus. It's it's just not important enough to pay attention. We become so distracted by the events in life that it's easy for us at times to neglect our walk with Jesus. And the next thing you know, we've drifted so far from God, we, we can't even see him. So what is the remedy? It's to pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. We have our eyes up on Jesus because his words, his message, as the writer of Hebrews is sharing with us, his message is far superior in content and impact to any other message. And so today we ask this question, how do we know that his words, the words of Jesus are authentic, that they're accurate, that they're trustworthy? Hebrews 2, verses 2 through 3. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? How do we know that the message announced by the Lord is really the message spoken by Jesus? So let's take a moment. And let's dig in and see what the author really teaches us. Let's see if we can better understand this. It's as if the writer is comparing two different messages, right? Number one, number two. What are those two different messages? The first one is a message that was delivered by what? Angels. The other was announced by the Lord, by Jesus Christ. And so he's comparing them side by side to help us to see which one will we choose. So what's this message delivered by the angels? Well, what is that? That's the Old Testament law, right? Um, That's the Ten Commandments, big C, right? That is based upon works. And it's as if he's saying, it's quite obvious which one you should choose. So what is this message first announced by the Lord? Well, it is so great, right? A salvation. It is by, not by works, but by grace. It is the good news. It is bought and paid by the blood 
of Jesus. So he compares these two. You've got the one which is binding by punishment. This one is inescapable through love. Right? This one is motivated by guilt. This one is motivated by grace. So when he says, um, how can you escape if you ignore so great a salvation? That word neglect or ignore that is used in that passage indicates that this is something that's so insignificant and unimportant, I don't have time to even pay attention to it. If it gets lost, it's no big deal. It's just that insignificant to me. And that is what they were in danger of, of drifting back to this works-based salvation, which no one can be saved by that. And he says, this is not the choice that I want you to make. It is quite obvious to the writer, but he puts them side by side to help us see, to help us compare, as if to ask us the question, which one will you choose? What about you? Which message are you going to choose to pay attention to and to follow? So if the message by Jesus is the message to live by, then I, I need to know whether that this message is a message that is trustworthy and is what Jesus said. Is what we read in Scripture credible? Is this really the message of God? And you and I know this isn't just a minor question. This is one of the most crucial questions for us to answer. Why? Because our faith is dependent upon what is written in this book, the Bible. If it isn't reliable, if this isn't dependable, then we're building our lives on sinking sand. We, we are in so much trouble. And the writer of Hebrews knows this crucial truth. So he does what other authors in Scripture, other of the writers that God ordained, what they do. They provide some backing. So look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there are two very important phrases in those two verses that we need to pay attention to. The first, the phrase which says, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In other words, the message was confirmed through eyewitnesses. So he says there, it was confirmed to us. It's like the author is saying, we didn't hear these words directly from Jesus, but those who taught us, they heard him. In other words, these were second-generation Christians, which makes this particularly appealing because we too are listening to those who heard Jesus. We didn't hear Jesus, but we're listening by reading this word to those. So important to the early church and to us are the hearers, the eyewitnesses of the message of Jesus, which they in turn have passed on to us. They were a confirmation. How is that true? Well, the word confirm that he uses there 
it carries the sense of this firm assurance or a guarantee. Thus, although the author and his hearers had not heard the message of salvation from the mouth of Jesus himself, it was something that they could absolutely count on, something they knew to be true. Those who preached to them were eyewitnesses. Thus, the message, as he says, was confirmed. Now, something you need to know about me is I'm a person who doesn't just take your word for something. You know, if you declare a statement and say X is true, then the first automatic thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, what's your source? And if you say Facebook or the National Enquirer, then I'm going to probably roll my eyes at you and just dismiss your claims. But if you tell me that you saw it with your own eyes or that you were present when so-and-so did this or made these exact claims, then I'm, I'm going to take your word for it. And if there's another trusted person who makes the same claim as an eyewitness, to me, that's, that's proof that would confirm the truth. And so you need to know that those who wrote these words, they didn't get them secondhand, but they were eyewitnesses. They saw and they heard Jesus teach these things. They confirmed it. So several years ago, I witnessed an accident, a car accident, and then sometime later, I was called to a trial to tell what I witnessed. So in court, an eyewitness is counted as reliable, especially when there's like more than one eyewitness and they back up each other's story. It's, it's no wonder God provided us four gospel accounts Four different people tell about what Jesus said and did. They confirm that we're reading, what we're reading is actually from Jesus. So phrase one, they confirmed to us by those who heard him. Phrase two is found in verse four. It says, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, the testimony by God. So the language that's used here in verse 4, it's a legal language. It's suggesting that this is a concept of God who enters the courtroom of history to cor corroborate the testimony of those who follow the Lord. You know, in other words, God has not just simply spoken a word, but he has acted through signs, wonders, and various miracles. And God's working of such powerful acts is to say to the whole world, pay attention. This is real. This is true. This is from me. God is testifying. He's saying, pay attention. And he testified through various miracles. See, the preaching of that day was made effective through the accompanying witness of God. And that testifying of God came through signs, wonders, and various miracles. I mean, think about Jesus and all the miracles that he did. Think about the early church on the day of Pentecost. God testified with many signs and wonders, right? There was the sound of rushing wind, which drew people there. There was the tongues of fire over the speaker's head. There were speakers who were speaking in other languages that they didn't know. In Acts 3, Peter and John 
are on their way to the temple and they heal a beggar, the healing, God testifying with the miracle. And so a huge crowd gathered to listen to their message. Acts 14 and verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, the there being Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, notice this, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. We know a human being cannot do a miracle. They cannot perform a sign. They can't do a wonder. So when it happens... It is God, the divine, testifying to the truth of this particular message. So how do we know that the message of Jesus in Scripture is true? Confirmation by eyewitnesses and the testimony of God himself. And so as you read back through this passage again, the point of the writer is this. Why would you intentionally or even unintentionally ignore what is clearly a message of salvation by none other than God himself? Why would you stop paying attention to it? You've done that and you're in danger of drifting away because you don't see the worth or the value of this message. It's time to wake up to reality. God has spoken to you. God has spoken to me. We can anchor our life in the truth and the solidity of the word of God. In what is your faith anchored? So apparently there have been a variety of anchors that have been used through the ages. Now I have a couple of very pretty decorative ones here. That one's pretty cool. This one's pretty cool. According to historians, the first anchors were probably just big rocks tied with a rope. Then anchors became baskets of rocks or large sacks that were filled with sands. Then iron was used and they used these what's called flukes or teeth. And they look at a variety of different ways. But what's their purpose? To help secure them to the bottom of the water. Now obviously changes have been made in anchors throughout the years. But they still have the same function. Secure the boat to the bottom to keep that boat from drifting away. So the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, what is the anchor? In other words, to what is your faith in God anchored? Such an important question for you and I to wrestle with and think through and to answer for ourselves. And all of us come to a point in time where we have to deal with this question. So in week one, we discussed the significance of the one we must pay most careful attention to. But today... We, we learned that our faith is anchored by the credibility of Jesus' words clearly revealed in the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So how do we know this truth is credible? How do we know the Word of God is reliable and can be an anchor for your soul and for my soul. So I've asked Elliot to share some insights into the reliability of God's Word. Why has it been important to him and how does he help students recognize the validity of God's Word? So Doug asked me to talk about the Bible and I was so excited to do it because you might not know this about me, but the Bible is like my favorite. 
I know that sounds shocking and hard to believe coming from a pastor, but I do. I love the Bible for as long as I can remember. The Bible has been the only thing to consistently be captivating and engaging and interesting and alive enough to actually hold my attention, which is a challenge, I will admit. And as a student pastor, I get to have so many amazing conversations with students about the Bible. And I thought it could be useful if I shared some of those common questions and answers that I get to talk with them about so frequently. So first, let's talk about what is the Bible. The Bible is a library, a collection of books, letters, stories, all detailing the interaction of the God of the universe with his amazing creation, most notably humanity. And it tells the story of how humanity found itself in a place needing to be rescued and how God stepped out of eternity into our own mess to rescue us. So if that's the story, if that's what the Bible is, how did we get it? How did it end up in our hands in the year 2020? Well, these people had these interactions, these experiences with the living God. And they were so blown away and they were inspired to write down what took place, to convey and tell the story of that miracle, that truth, that interaction, the, the jaw-dropping experience that they had with the Almighty and pass that on to future generations. And over time, they copied and told the stories and transmitted this information, God's Word, faithfully and accurately. So if the Bible is a collection of different books and letters and, and perspectives from different people in over hundreds of years, who the heck put it all together? Who decided what would go into the Bible? Well, by the time Jesus was alive, 2,000 years ago, what we call the Old Testament was already collected, put together, and held as a holy book. And when it comes to the New Testament, it's a really interesting process of how it came about. A lot of people tend to think that there was some meeting with a bunch of dudes who just decided one day, you know what, here's the books, here's your Bible, go read it, have fun. And there may be a small element of truth to that, but really it's the end of the process that took place. See, as the early church was living and growing and experiencing God in new and interesting and fascinating ways, they would take these stories and write them down and share them with each other. And letters would be written and gospels would be written and the information would be spread and shared from church to church to city to city all over the Roman Empire. And the process that took place to circulate these writings was a really organic one. It's not unlike how a video might go viral on the internet. These letters and gospels and writings became sort of a list of bestsellers that was circulated throughout all the churches. And the people of God decided collectively that these are the ones that are worthwhile. And by the time there were people meeting and debating what should or shouldn't be included in the Holy Scriptures, the list they came up with, they were just really rubber stamping something that God had already orchestrated through His people. 
So the last question we'll touch on today is probably the one I get more often than any other. And it goes something like this. If the Bible was faithfully, accurately copied and transmitted from generation to generation, why in the heck are there so many translations today? Why are there all these different versions? I mean, seriously, look sometime at your Bible app, open it up and look at the different translations just in English. There are so many and that's just scratching the surface. And underneath that question is a misconception that's pretty common, I think, that one translation may have gotten out of date. King James English doesn't really get spoken anymore. So they took it, cleaned up the language and slapped a new cover on it and said, this is now the new international version. And then that kind of got a little outdated and the language felt clunky because language keeps growing. And so they cleaned up the language and, and copied it down again and made it a little bit more modern. And then they got the New Living Translation. And if that's how you think the Bible came to be today in English, then yeah, it would make sense that it's the result of this ancient game of telephone that would naturally introduce some errors or add some things in or take some things out. Bible translation may not work the way you think it does. See, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And when they decide that they're going to make a new translation, they go back to the oldest, most ancient manuscripts we have, to the source, to translate from that into English all over again. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And they go to the oldest, most reliable, best manuscripts that we have and translate from that. They're not just making photocopies of photocopies of photocopies. They are going back to the original, translating all over again. And there are so many versions because there are so many different kinds of readers. And if you are struggling to find a translation that you like, I would recommend checking out the New International Version or the New Living Translation. Both of those, really easy to read, really accurate to the text as well. So before I go, I've got two quick recommendations if you want to dive a little bit deeper. First, check out The Bible Project. You've heard me talk about them before. They have a website, they have a YouTube channel, just Google The Bible Project. You will find so many hours of binge-worthy content. It's awesome. The second one is a YouTube channel called The 10-Minute Bible Hour. This guy, Matt, who looks suspiciously like my brother, mind you, does such a good job of taking topics like this huge topics and condensing it and explaining it in such an interesting and accessible way. Thank you guys so much. I'll throw it back to Doug. I'm so thankful for Elliot and his influence on students and the words that he shared with us. We can know that the words of Jesus contained in this book are true. So again, the question is, is this your anchor? Is this truth, is it credible and re reliable? Too many allow their faith, their faith to be anchored in other things, like our own personal abilities and strength, right? That's what keeps me strong, or my political party, or, or my friends, or maybe science, or family, or my counselor, or my career, or my IRA, or pension, or even some philosophical view of life. And all of those have the potential to kind of help us and aid us, but eventually, they're going to slip and they're going to pull up from the bottom and we're going to 
drift away from Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to allow your faith to be anchored in the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. So with this in mind, we, we want to encourage you to take this book, the Bible, which eyewitness confirms and to which God himself testifies. We want you to read it. It can't be our anchor. If it just sits on a shelf or if it's just an app in which you never, ever open. So I want you to listen as Brandy shares another one of our tools to help us have our eyes up and our anchors down. The anchor of reading our Bible. The Word of God is a light to our path. It is a guidebook to help us navigate the trials, the things, the struggles that we may face in this life. Even the common things that we face, it can help guide us in making the correct decisions, the correct path that God wants us to take in our lives. You know, it's really hard to remain anchors down whenever we are not having that focus, that thing that really anchors, helps to anchor us down is God's word. And, you know, I shared a few Thanksgivings ago about how a friend had given me a Bible. I was in one of the darkest times of my life where I literally couldn't see any light. And my friend knew I needed the light of God's word to light my path. She had gone through and put in different verses of sticky notes so that I would see these different verses that were going to apply to what I was going through. You know, whenever I started to read through it, I wasn't reading everything. I was just reading those verses. And let me tell you, when I thought darkness reigned in my life in that moment, a light finally shined through through those verses, those random verses throughout the whole Bible that I was reading daily to try and find the path that I needed, the light that I needed to light the path that I needed. I encourage you to really use the Bible, God's word, as a way to anchors down and have your eyes up on Jesus so that you can weather the storms that you are going to face in life. How can you read your Bible? What can you do today to start reading your Bible? Maybe it's just a chapter a day starting in the beginning. Maybe it's a Bible reading plan from the Bible Hub app. But just start today. Maybe, like I said, it was just a verse. I was reading a day. Start using this anchor in some way. What can you do to make Bible reading a way for you to remain eyes up and anchors down? Eyes up, anchors down. Thank you, Brandy. Let the truth of God and the words of Jesus found in this book be an anchor to your soul.